if there were a dictionary which had entries like this and you looked up electronic techno DJ producer, you might find a picture of Richie Houghton. Richie uh, has really done everything. He's just had an incredible career, always pushing the envelope as a DJ. He's played everywhere, all over the planet, heavy touring DJ, but also always keeping it kind of conceptually sharp. A lot of focus on the technical as a producer and an electronic composer. It's hard to, uh, overstate the influence of some of his albums and his acid work and his minimal work going all the way back to the early 90s. Richie is somebody who's pretty exciting uh, in terms of how he's always trying to reinvent himself, all kinds of side projects and entrepreneurial stuff, uh, but mostly somebody that I think really, really, really took that ethic of early techno and just yeah, just expanded that and traveled the world with it and became kind of an ambassador. I got to sit down with Richie Houghton on this edition of Last Party on Earth. We talked about, well, some of his massive tracks like Spastic. We talked about Minimalism, Herbie Hancock, uh, the joys of being weird. We talked obviously about concept albums and concept art, uh, his origins. We talked about industrial music the comfort of setting up a, a very technical system for a nerd like Richie. And make no mistake, he is a nerd. And uh, it was a great conversation. The track's kind of the history of techno and electronic music over the last 30 years. And uh, with a very optimistic and future-forward, future-leaning view. Hope you enjoy it. This is Richie Houghton, a.k.a. Plastic Man, on Last Party on Earth. Last. Party. Party on Earth. So Richie Houghton, welcome to the show. Rich. Richie. <laughs> Whatever um, you call me, what you want. I, I kind of go back and forth between Rich and Richie. Um, so one thing is funny, when I do my morning warm-up for shows is like, you know, I, I have a lot of coffee and sometimes I go to Wikipedia and sometimes I, whatever, I do a little bit of prep. And actually this morning, this is the first time ever I was dancing. Okay. I, I actually... I put on sheet one this morning <laughs> and by side C, by plasticine, I was dancing, like Whoa. dancing, full grown man, 10 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, see, that's, uh, that's, the, um, that's the, um, the giveaway there, full grown man dancing at 10 in the morning after you just got up, not 10 in the morning that you've been up for one day or two days. What, so you're showing your age somehow. I know that you're trying to like paint a picture, but I don't know if you just painted the wrong picture. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, let's say I slept through the party and I woke up for the morning set. Oh, okay, and exactly. I, and I showed yeah. up early. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I listened to, uh, I went through some of the albums yesterday. I spent my Sunday in the garden. I went through and yeah, whatever. I, I was kind of blown away. I kind of had, I had forgotten how much there was. Mm. Um, I'm sure it's the same, you know, I, you're probably like me. You don't look back very often. I don't really do that too much. I never listen to my own music. But when an outsider does it, I was like, holy shit, those albums uh, in sequence, so mm. much stuff. And I had forgotten just, yeah, how much I loved it and how great it was. So, yeah, anyway. well, you know, funny, I, I, I don't think there's, I, I've recorded that much because the other morning, um, I was, I wanted to listen to a Tangerine Dream, Dream album. And, uh, so I went to Spotify and then went to Tangerine Dream and then went to albums. And I felt like I was scrolling for like two minutes <laughs> to get to the album that I wanted, which was like more in the seventies or early eighties. And then I was really like, wow, like that's output, 
you know, scroll like, length, <laughs> length of scroll. Yeah. Like it was intense. You know, I'm like, I'm, you know, my output is like one flick, you know, and yeah. man, you know, a good flick. And but it, by the time it slows down, you're at, the, you're, you're at the end, you know, but uh, Tangerine Dream was multiple flicks. Yeah. That's, that's how I, when I go through Bob Dylan records, I'm like, God damn. Like, yeah. Well, yours is, yours is, I think it's respectable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think, um, there's no, um, there's no master plan or, or competition about how many albums or when to do them or why to do them. You just kind of, you know, do them when they, when, when they happen. And, um, I think, um, music happened much more, um, you know, um, more often in the earlier years, just because, there was less other things happening in our lives. All we needed to do or wanted to do was to sit into the studio and maybe go to an odd gig every couple of weekends. And then, uh, and then touring came and then, you know, that kind of took a lot of your time, which gave less emphasis or time for albums. And then other things in life come and then you find yourself kind of on the other side, trying to like carve out time to, you know, mm. actually do music and then carve out time to do music that you hope is the time when you feel like doing music because it's, um, you know, at least in, in, in my side, I, I never really wanted to force my creativity. I just wanted to kind of let it happen as naturally as possible. And, and DJing became very, very much scheduled and regulated. So the more that became like that, the more I really just wanted to make music when the urge was there. So, um, I always wanted music just to kind of be there for, you know, so, uh, something that you really enjoyed and wanted to do and didn't feel like you had to do it. Yeah. There's an odd conflict. You, you mentioned like DJing or D, uh, DJing as a career when it becomes, like you said, pretty regimented and, and you're on that, that wheel, that routine. It, it clashes in a lot of ways with with the freedom of making music in a, in a way that's not always intuitive. You know, you think I think people from the outside think it's all all kind of flows together, but in a lot of t a lot of ways, it can there could be a conflict there in in headspace. You know? Yeah. Well, I think to a outside person who's not involved in our world, who may have a more normal nine to five, I think you know, looking at what we do, there is fluidity to it. You know, we are masters of our own uh, schedules. We pick and choose when and where we want to go for DJing and, and we have these incredible lifestyles. But, you know, you do have to plan further and further ahead. And there is some kind of logistic and system to it. So it is like a, a, a square in a, in, in, a, in a circle peg or whatever you, sometimes it feels like that, you know? Um, but, but it's, it's, it's all a mindset. Like, you know, I, yeah. I remember for, for a long time I was like, oh my God, like, you know, I, I, I need to, I need to change my schedule around my lifestyles. You know, when I'm home, I'm not staying up late. I'm more of a day person and I only make my albums at night. Like, so I can't make music. And then <laughs> over time, over time you find actually now I'm like, you know, I, I, on my good days, I'm up at six. And if I can be in the studio by seven or 8 a.m., you know, my best time is that moment, that, that morning time in, until about 12 or one when mm. I can be my most productive and most creative and fluid, which, you know, you told, told 20 year old, um, hot and that he would have been like, are you, what do you want? Crack. <laughs> so well, speaking of, so speaking of 20 year old rich or thereabouts, just to start off, 
and because we're talking about, you know, schedules and, and where, when the inspiration hits, tell me the story of making spastic. Because I heard, <laughs> I heard, I heard little versions. I've heard versions from Matthew Deere being corroborated maybe by Derek May. I've heard some little snippets. Tell me, tell me the, tell me the story of, of making spastic. Yeah. Well, normally like what I would do when I went to a party or played a party back in the early days of Windsor and Detroit, um, I would come home with my brother and we would usually drag his bed or his futon into my bedroom. And then we'd turn on ambient music and kind of come down together. So how old are you here? You know, 17, 18, 19. And, and, and so what I'm, what I'm saying is I never would use, it was very rare that I would go from a party into the studio. It was just like, it was, I, I would kind of let the party finish in my own head and really let it percolate the ideas, the inspiration, what had happened for a couple of days before going back into the studio. And one of the only times that I actually went direct from the party to the studio was the morning after listening to Derek May play on at the Banco building in Detroit. And I guess that was 1993. And uh, we were dancing all night and there was just moments where I was trying to grasp my intellectual side of what records he was playing and my emotional side was just trying to like, hey, don't think and just enjoy this moment. And it would, it would just, it would this, there was many of these moments this, this whole night. It was like probably, no, it was easily the best Derek, you know, performance I'd ever heard. And he was just twisting things in and out. And there was just so much rhythm and percussion and snares and hi-hats. And my imitation of that night or my, what I thought I had heard or what I felt or whatever, what came out of me that morning, um, going to the studio with my friend Rob Leonard Doozy, um, was spastic. You know, we kind of went down and, and he was sitting in the corner and he kept thinking he saw a little dog running around in my studio. You know, I don't, you know, that was, uh, that was, a, that's another <laughs> part of the story. And as he was, you know, hallucinating seeing the dog, I was playing with the 808 and, uh, 909 and just did like an 18 minute quick jam. I think we were down there for an hour, two hours and recorded it and turned it off and went to bed. And that was kind of it. And it, you know, it wasn't until a couple of months later, or oh, I don't know, six weeks later, where I was playing some things to Seth Hodder from Mute. And he was just like, wow, what, what, what is this drum thing? And, and I, I really hadn't thought much about it. I, 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 I wasn't playing it out, you know, because I had acetates of other stuff. And it was really his excitement over this 808 track that got me to kind of really think about it and actually then play it out on acetate. And after I played it out once on acetate at the warehouse in Cologne at around 10 a.m., you know, back to your dancing thing. It was like light coming in. And I was like, okay, let me just try this track. <laughs> I wasn't actually confident about it at all. And then the place just blew up. And I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe Seth is right. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we should do something with this. It was so sparse and so stripped down and... Like, yeah, well, that's why it's spastic. It was just so different than everything else was out there. I don't, I don't know. You know, like sometimes you make something yeah. like, like when I made F.U., I called it F.U., like fuck you, because I knew it was fucking hot. And I was just like, fuck you. Like this is a, this is 
this is this is such a slammer. Like when this gets out on record, everybody is going to want to play it. It was just so you know, it, just, it was just all in there. But and I was so confident about it, and thankfully, you know, I can speak about it being confident about it now because it, it it did make a mark. But uh, but spastic, um, uh, it was in a way more of a it was experimental in the end, you know. Sometimes the the records where there's so little happening, where, where that there's so little happening that that in and in and of itself is almost the hook. You know, the the, the sparseness of it is the hook, and a lot of the time yeah. that it requires. Sometimes it's someone else, like in this case Seth, saying the confidence to be like, okay, no, no, this is enough. This is it by itself. Yeah, and then yeah. once it's once it's given the chance, it kind of feels obvious later but yeah and, and and there was never you know back to the way i recorded back then and 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 even i try to record again more that way was just set the machines were running and and um i would have walked into the studio and there would have been a patch kind of up like the 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 dp4s would have been on a certain delay and my reverbs would have been plugged in and the 808 909s were all kind of hardwired so it would have just been going in and doing some crazy 30-second notes and, and seeing what worked. And then, oh, yeah, that's kind of fun. Press play on the dat, and, and that was it. Like, there was no going back to things. Or I very rarely made something and then went back to it and tried to reproduce it. It was always like, okay, that's what it was. Move on. And, um, and that's, I think, without Seth saying something, that may have been what would have happened to Spastic. It would have been sitting there as one of those things which was like, okay, that was fun. That was, uh, that was, that's going to get me somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it was more, more of a, more of an in-between idea than, than anywhere else. And then you realize perhaps not. (laughs) Good, good A&R as well. You know, you, you watch like music documentaries or like, or for that matter, politics, you know, people are like, oh, I remember where I was when JFK, blah, blah, blah. The only record I can think of that I remember where I was, including my own, is Spastic. I remember I was at a warehouse. I don't know what, why. I was in a warehouse. I think Laurent Garnier played it. And I was in some giant, sketchy armory or warehouse in New York at a party. And I heard it. And I remember um, it's one of those records that just, you know, you just hadn't heard anything like it. It just, it just, that, that's just as simple, as simple as that. It just sounded like nothing else, you know? So let, let's, let's get to some of the, what's the first record you bought with your own money? Oh, you know, I don't think it was the first record completely, but I remember going Or the to, first one that was your own. Uh, well, I, 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 w- I would say it was um, Herbie Hancock Rocket. I just remember going on a high school, no, on a grade school trip. I must have been in grade seven to Toronto and buying that record. Like it wasn't the first one that I bought. You know, I'm sure there were some other things along the way, but like that, no, was, but it's... that was, that was like, I remember going there. Going Great to the seven store. school trip. Yeah. That's and, a good... you know, going to Toronto to be a, to a big city. I was like, okay, big city, record store. Record and tell the people like, well, uh, what? What is a record store? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and um, you know, it was one of those moments where, which I've had often in my life where everyone's kind of looking at you like, what the weird guy buy? <laughs> like, you know, and you're, and you're, the, and, and, and you're, and you're happy in your weirdness. 
Remember the video with the weird robots? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I saw that recently. It's so it's it's, it's, it's still it's, pretty trippy. Yeah, it, yeah. It's so low tech, and you see how it's done. But it, but it was so high tech and futuristic then. It was just like wow. It, it was just like what is this guy thinking? Like you know, like it was just a a, a vision a vision that you that you knew was so far out there for so many yeah. people. But for, for, for some people, you kind of looked at each other and you're like, yeah, I get it, you know, giving everyone yeah, the thumbs I love, up. Probably my favorite thing about the 80s, growing up in the 80s, was, was that it's that weird, it's that zone where something really bizarre and experimental snuck into the mainstream. Mm. So, you know, you have this, you have this weird thing where you're, you're like me, you know, you're a kid at home, you're watching your music videos and this thing comes on that's, that's by all standards, like totally experimental, mm. but you're just like, okay, cool. You know, it just, it just, it kind of somehow escaped the filters and you're getting just some weird jazz guy experimenting with robots and samplers. And yeah, like, yeah, well, you know, that's it. You couldn't get really more futuristic than that, like uh, for music no, at that couldn't. point. And it, and it was not, not only was it futuristic, but it was mainstream and popular and everybody was like, Digging, digging it, but they weren't actually getting it. It was just kind of a blip. Like a, it was cool because it was so weird, but actually it was like like opening up, you know, kind of a, a signpost to where 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 maybe you wanted to go. So one question I have for you is: so you, I always I've seen you as you're very good with the concepts. You know, you, you from the from the packaging to the logos to the names to the the track titles. Um, and I was wondering if there was some, an artist, I mean, Kraftwerk is a name that jumps to mind. If there was something when you were really young, where you, where you first remember getting that idea, seeing it in other people's work? You know, when I was six and seven, we lived in this bungalow in a small village. And in my mom and dad's room, the back wall of their, you know, at the head of their bed had been painted by my dad by hand black and with the cover of Dark Side of the Moon on by Pink Floyd. And uh, I didn't get it, but like, you know, I, like, I, I loved it. It was just so like, wow, what, a, what an image. And, and, uh, and I wasn't into the music back then, but somehow, like I, I remember that just being such a, a visual, visually impressive. And, and, and I think as I was growing up, like older, as I started to get into music, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, my dad had the Kraftwerk albums also. Like, they were somehow iconic. I don't even know if I knew the word iconic. Uh, and then, you know, I think the, the main label that got me, well, like, I was into Network Records from Canada, from Vancouver, who did the early Sarah McLaughlin, Skinny Puppy, and Skinny Severed, Puppy, Se yeah. Severed Heads. And they had a strong look, um, you know, and uh, strong logo identity and musical identity, mute records with Nitzreb and all mm -hmm. the erasures. Um, like, and even like, you know, I was a Duran Duran fan, my brother even more so. And they had all these tw 12 inches back then in the 80s, you know, like different remixes. Night and versions. This. And then they were, you know, like, who was, they used um, a fan, like an Neville artist. Neville Brody or? No, not, not Neville Brody. No. Nag Nagel or someone or like. Oh yeah, Patrick Nagel. Yeah, like. On, on, yeah, for, so, the, for the Rio girl. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, but there was just, uh, I don't know, there was just uh, a real cohesion in a lot of those different labels and identities that I'm, I'm speaking about. Um, mm. And so it just came 
kind of natural, I guess, when John Acquaviva and I started the record label, Plus 8, that th that was going to be kind of instilled into it. You know, and remember, okay, you kind of got to remember, like, before I was getting into music, you know, I was always a, a techie kid. I was programming on my Commodore 64 and VIC-20 and making video games. So there was always this kind of coding and animation and sounds. And there was always this kind of love of the visual medium because I wanted to actually go into special effects and film. That was my, that's, that was going to be my, my, my schooling before I kind of gave up that avenue to hang out in Detroit a little bit longer and see if this DJing thing went anywhere. So, so maybe it was just always, I've just always been this kind of sensory kid. I interviewed Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran and, and he had a background in film and photography. And he said, you know, probably the same, you know, just the idea almost of building sets, you know, you're, you're, you're looking for always, you know, the best photographer or the best, you know, you're, you're putting together these almost like miniature films in album form. You know, you're trying to take a lot of those elements and make it work. Yeah, and, and also, like, like if I was going to Toronto at 7 and buying Rocket, like, you know, I was going to record stores from very early on, and you're looking at the walls, and, you know, there's all these beautiful covers, and it's like, which, what do I listen to first? And even going through my dad's collection, you know, slowly when I started to go through it when he wasn't at home because I wasn't supposed to touch his records, you would, okay, he's away. So which record am I going to listen to? So you would, that would be a visual decision, right? Like what looks cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, 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 all those things just like, you know. I like, still buy my records based on what the cover looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, you know. You know, like how do you pick all this stuff apart and how do we, how do we, no, we're, we're sp by osmosis and with sponges taking all this in, how does it all like connect and then suddenly become, we make, how we make deciding factors in our life and in our creativity? When you got into maybe techno or industrial, whatever style it was, was there ever a sense of rebellion? Not, not well, like, you know, like my dad was also into like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, and like, and the Beatles and like, you know, so my rebellion was like, you know, kind of going com completely monochromatic and no vocals and things like that. But I think it was much more complimentary because I think what, what I took from my, you know, what, what the inspiration from my dad's collection with you know, Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and, and, and like, they're, they're, well, even the, even the Beatles, there's these kind of like anthologies and there's this like, there's this cohesion and there's this storytelling and there's these long form album concepts. Like, come on, you know, Tangerine Dream, they were all kind of long form yeah. conceptual pieces. Kraftwerk were like that. Pink Floyd were like that. So I, I, I think, um, and, and I remember, like, completely remember in even in 93, after I kind of had this Fuse album compilation and everybody was really releasing CDs, compilations of their singles, it was like, well, this is so boring. Like, everyone's like, what? the album format has so much more depth and power than just putting your eight dance club singles that were made for a specific sound system, you know, weren't actually made to think of a home listening situation. Um, so, so that I was quite rebellious at, at that, at those moments to say, Hey, no, let's, let's, let's take the album format and take it deeper. That was, um, so that's, that's sheet one. That's like from within records, you know, then there's a rebellion of, of going against the 12 inches for concept of actually, okay, well, let's use the, 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 
the, the 12 inch as a long form project and actually go and experimental and don't use it for dance music, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're an album, album rebel. Um, <laughs> is there a moment where you remember either deciding you wanted to DJ or kind of falling in love with DJing? Yeah, well, I was already... Like I was five. You were, you were five or you, you're putting words in my no, mouth? No, no, I'm saying you. Like, well, well, let me tell you. Was, okay, so for, for my ninth birthday party, for when I moved away from England to Canada, um, my record, my, my, my cake was a, a turntable. I had a disco and my aunt gave me this incredible record called Disco Direction which was a compilation which has another great record, which I didn't buy myself, but if I didn't get it that day, I would have bought it myself as my first record. And that was by the raw band called The Crunch, which is an incredible kind of, you gotta, you gotta listen to it. It's like this kind of analog, it's not a 303, but it's as acidic as you get in 1978. It's absolutely in, in, incredible. I don't think I had aspirations to be a DJ when I was nine, but somehow I was, I loved dancing when I was nine. That's why I had a disco. Like I thought I, I had all these cool moves and I did these things on the floor. It must've been terrible. Like my parents must've been like cringing. Oh no, he's going to do that dance move now. Okay, everybody clap. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't know. I, I, I love that stuff back then. So, so when I finally get to a point of saying, am I going to be a DJ? I don't know if I remember, I don't remember that that moment but I started doing some gigs playing some records after about eight months in my basement trying to practice with one 1200 and but what even got you to that point like for example the, the step between you know collecting records loving records loving music being kind of obsessed with that and 1200s like well, where, break dancing was in the middle and I, so I was okay. really into break dancing and kind of electro and so dancing was again really really big for me and you know what it was? It was collecting records. And I remember having a, dis a conversation with a friend of mine at the time. Like, and there was a conversation, something like, well, Rich, why don't you just DJ? Because you have all the records that we all want to hear. You're, co you're the record collector. So why don't you just play the records you're collecting? And then it was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So that was more, it was a bit more alternative then, you know, it was the skinny puppy and stuff like that. And I think that progressed into my first sets. And those were, weren't really mixed. It was just playing the cool, scary alternative records. And we we're all in black doing, What's you know. This? So this is like late, late 80s? Yeah, no, that would be then mid 80s. That would have been like probably 14, 15, 16. So you were big, I mean, industrial and new way of stuff was a big thing for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's why, like I say, like Net Network and Front 242, uh, a great Canadian band from London called Psych or Psyche. You know, Psyche, oh, the, the brain collapses. Yeah, like this, yeah, this is a great, great You're the record. first person I've heard ever mention. That's one of my favorite records ever. Well, well then play, your, okay, so everybody, after this little intro, you're going to hear Brain Collapses. This is, a, this is a duo, brothers, from London, Ontario, which is like two hours from my house. 
the same place, basically a city where John Aquaviva is and is living when I meet him. And and when you listen to their records, it's all this kind of like six oh sixy kind of early yeah. roll and drum. And like I listen to them now, and I like I hear like I kind of hear Plastic Man percussion in those. So, like, one of the infatuations of, of DJing and making music, you know, there was a bit of an epiphany when I met Derek and Jeff and Juan and Kevin, and you're like, okay, these people are the ones making this record that you're playing. And it was really, it was close. It was attainable somehow. You're like, well, I can do this. Like, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're like, yeah, well, they can do it. I can do it too. You know, that was, yeah. that was kind of the attitude. And, 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 and psych, Psyche was similar. It was like, well, they're just from down the road and they've got their own record yeah. label. This was two or three years before having a record label. But like, and the other thing about being a record collector then before being a DJ, was finding those records that nobody else had. That was why I ended up becoming a DJ, because you had already sought out. You were already at the record store to get the one copy of the limited edition, one-sided Australian print of Severed Heads that nobody else yeah. knew existed. And then, of course, when you DJed and you played that, everyone was running up saying, what, what version of Dead Eyes Opened is this? Yeah, I was massively into all that stuff. I think Front 242 was my big one. And... Uh... I remember years later when I signed to P.S. for my first album, Play It Again, Sam. And I remember, I think the reason I signed to P.S. was they had this room in Brussels. They had this like vault room with every, all the, all the bands I had loved, all these Belgian signing stuff. And I was like, oh, like I felt I was part of that tradition. You yeah. Know? Well, you know, like I remember, remember when uh, we had the call or fax from Pepe and Seth who were running Novamute. Uh, and saying, "Hey, we we love what you're doing at Plus Eight. Let's meet." And we're like, "Oh my God!" Like John, oh, John, yeah, it's we're mute. like, and 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 that was that was already that was '91, and in the summer of '88, I had gone to England because I'm from England. So some summers we would go and visit family and travel around. And I was in London, and I had gone to 429 Harrow Road, which was the address oh, for yeah. Mute Record, yeah, yeah. and just kind of stood outside the door. And I was like, <laughs> this is where all the music comes from. This is where Nitzarev comes from. This is where Erasure comes from. This is where, yeah. you know, and, and, and then three, three, four years later, um, you know, we, 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 we decided to do a probe compilation with them. And then they're the ones who ended up getting Plastic Band. They're the ones, you know, Seth over there was one of the ones who, like I said, who kind of, you know, was maybe maybe responsible for for getting Spasic to actually get get heard. So so it's funny how all those you know dots get connected, and uh, yeah. you're kind of pushing in in that way, I guess somehow or you know subconsciously, anyway. And um, and you know I'm a big one for you know you you go with the with the flow, and and there's these cross points, and it's like yeah things things are meant to happen sometimes. Did you ever, as a producer? Did you ever look for your Douglas McCarthy? Like, did you ever think, okay, I, I make this incredible instrumental music? You know, not, not that there's something missing, but did you ever entertain the idea like of you being a Richard H. Kirk and finding a Stephen Melinder? No, or, no. 
Absolutely never. No, no, no. I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, this is like, I'm so DIY this way. Like, I love the the power of being in the studio by yourself with the machines or computer and 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 having complete creative control from beginning to end, and and then beyond the end, going into packaging and and all this of the the whole artistic dream is what I love about what's happened in, in creative culture the last like 30 years, you know? That's what I loved about computers, that I could get in front of a computer and tell it to do something. And when I press run, if I had told it the correct instructions, it was going to do exactly what I said. And somehow that's what I do. That's unlike, what, a, that's, unlike a singer. Yeah, that's what, that's, so that's what I do in, in, in the studio, you know? And, and uh, yeah. it, it's, me in the, it's me in the tech. I was never... And that's why I haven't done so many collaborations. I got, you know, I had incredible collaboration with, with Pete Namlock and uh, Pete, Pete Kuhlman back in the day with Fax. And, uh, um, but it, it was really, it was what I aspired to, to, to find. Is there a record, this is a hard one, but is there a record you remember um, which made you think or feel, okay, I want to make music? You know, before I was making, getting into synths and, and things like that, I remember... There was a cold cut record, like or some of these early sampling records. Like, what was it? Was it? Oh man, I'm gonna have to do a search for that cold cut. Yeah, what time? There was what the, time they what, did. It's like their first white label. It was like yeah, all yeah, kind of like mash mash together, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was around the same time they did the Eric B and Rakim remix. Oh no, yeah. Say, kid, what time is it? On a white label, January. Oh yeah, this is it. Jan okay, so this is good. January 1987 is when it came out. I remember at that point, you know, I was trying to get better at DJing or learning DJing. I had this Newmark DJ mixer, which had two important things. One was the five band EQ, which kind of became part of my trademark of, of how I was like mixing and playing with frequencies, which was, you know, as much learned and inspired by the Detroit gang and especially, you know, Jeff and, and how his style was. Um, and had a little sampler in. So I was doing a lot of like sampling loops and pitching them as I was playing, very distant to what I ended up doing once I got in front of a 909 on 808. But that record somehow, and like putting in, and, and knowing that they had kind of, I'm gonna say it again, like done it themselves. It was kind of like a, a patchwork. And, and, and it wasn't really their music, it was samples, but they had, they had made something out of what was out there. Like, I, I'm not really articulating it well, but there was, that record somehow was important. It wasn't, I wasn't playing that style. It was just somehow inspiring of what they could do with sampling and, and tech. I know at that time I had, I had a, probably an Amiga computer and I had some samplers and I was playing around a little bit. And, and I'm just trying to like put my brain back in that I had my mom and dad had bought me a keyboard, you know, at 14 or something, you know, like I, I wasn't able to play. My friends were in a band and they were doing their thing. So potentially 
at, in 1987 time, 1986, like I'm playing records, I'm learning how to DJ, but the idea of actually still making music, like actually original completely, programming drums and some synthesizers is probably still kind of, even if it's only a year or two off, far off in my brain still at that point. I haven't found the tools. I haven't been, I haven't sat in front of a sequencer yet where I step sequence some notes and it actually allows me to play, you know? Because at that point yeah. I thought it was like, yeah, like you, you had to sit out and you'd have to have, have these classical skills. So I can imagine why that type of record would, would have been important to me. I guess in a way shorthand is punk you know that that's whatever when everyone talks about what punk music did it's basically that thing of like you don't have to be a prog rock band you could just grab a guitar i remember for whatever reason with me a big thing was i'd spent my whole childhood listening let's say depeche mode records or duran 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 records i never felt like i could do that and for some reason when i heard nine inch nails i was like okay i i kind of it was like i could somehow just hear the ingredients a little bit more. And he wasn't a classically incredible singer. And anyway, yeah. the, 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 those little things you pick up on. Um, is there a record that makes you jealous because it's so good? Derek May, Chaos. Rhythm is Rhythm. Oh, yeah. It's just a drum machine and a flanger, right? Like, well, actually, no, it's a DX100 too. But it's just boiled down to absolute perfection. And, 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 and it's like, how can basic just like staccato drum percussion be so catchy and infectious. feel the same way about a record like that had you not experienced it in a club possibly you know like um i, I had a nice little sound system at my in my at, at my house at that point my, my my dad always had incredible speakers and so we were listening to music relatively loud but yeah something as visceral as that particular track like you need to hear that kind of bumping out yeah. of a you know out, out, of, a, out of a sound system you know What's the best record you've ever made? Again, the word best, whatever, or your, or your favorite, or one that you really, really, really love. Yeah, you know what, this record, this, this answer is totally um, connected just to what I'm listening to and what I'm thinking about right now. Because two days ago, I was trying to remind myself how I did something on the EX album with the 303s and the compression and, and things like that. Uh, and so I, I brought it back up. And, and so that album, um, the last track called Exhale, is probably one of the most melodic um, tracks I've ever done. You know, it just it really kind of classic in its structure and strings and melodies. And uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. So at this week in my life, that would be maybe my favorite track that I've done.
you know a record of yours that I had completely forgotten about that's really, I found it quite beautiful, is that Coma record. Coma's beautiful. For the longest time, I would have always answered from, from within um, mm. a million miles to earth, you know, because that, that record really resonated. It was, was the December, or like January 1st, 1994, I played for a cocoon type event with Sven in Frankfurt. You know, we were we had such an incredible crew in Detroit that year of '93. Sheet One had come out. There were so many emotions, so many friendships bubbling under, and and then, you know, I had a new girlfriend, and then I went to Frankfurt, stayed a couple of days with Pete, and we were just making this music and this Tangerine Dream influences, and it just felt like I was in this bubble, so far away from Detroit and from all my friends, and it was cold and. And um, so there's something also intertwined really beautifully in, in, into that track too. that stands out where you felt like okay I made it like F you yeah I made it making F you the moment that was done because I was I was trying to find it's not that I made it like there was probably other points where I'm like okay I've made it on a different level but I was really trying to find my own sound you know and I was trying to make yeah. a track for my own label for plus eight that was as good as some of the other records were releasing by other people. Like we were getting, we were releasing Speedy J and Science and like some incredible records. And I, I was still feeling like, well, I, you know, it's my label, but I, I didn't, I didn't deliver yet. And, <laughs> you kind of deserve your spot. And when, uh, you know, and, and we'd had Technarchy, Cybersonic, that was, you know, but like, you know, that was that was Dan Bell and John Aquaviva and I, and and and, and more so Dan, Dan's original inspiration on that track so uh, you know when that track was done the moment it was done and i had recorded like it did my live take 303s pro one 909 big claps gated reverbs it was just like wow like that's again it was just like fuck you like this is it you know when you i wasn't saying oh. fuck you to, ev to, to everybody else i was nearly saying it to myself So the idea, we, you know, this is your last party ever, but uh, what is for you an example of a definitive peak time record? The first thing that came to mind that, and maybe it's because we were talking about him earlier, is is, is uh, the Bells by Jeff Mills. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, like, like that record, you know. Unfortunately, when a record is so big, it gets so overplayed that at least sometimes you you don't want to hear it. So I don't. Now, now I'm starting to like it's, it, it. I can I can hear it again, but in you know, it's ready. like, it, but it was it was um, it got so overplayed. But it's so catchy, but it's still so raw, and and um, 
and 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 driving you know like it just it's it's stripped down it has the meat it has everything but it just you just cannot get it out of your head like that's what you want at the peak time yeah. right yeah and it's instant that record it's yeah. just like you get ev everything you need in a, in an instant yeah. yeah it's a crazy amazing record played that record actually i've never played that record once i played it but not as not as often even when i loved it because it was just you knew it had been played five times already yeah what um closing record i mean the last record you ever play wow <laughs> just like that off the cuff you know you know what would be a you know you know what would be a great closing record would be uh satori by um sun electric because it's this beautiful little intro and it's also something that I used to play back in the day, but it's, it's like this ambient interlude and, and, when, and when, it, when it kicks in, it's like, it's like it's kicking in for one last time. And, 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 and it's, it's impossible to play anything else after it. something that comes up a lot with DJs. So I had a great talk with Jeff and he told me something that kind of blew my mind. He was like, cause I was like with Jeff, I'm like, you know, you have this background in hip hop and all these other styles. Why don't you kind of play it more? You know, what, why is it, why are we always getting this very straight ahead Jeff? Where's the crazy Je James Brown Jeff? You know, where's the other Jeff? And he told me it's crazy. He's like, he would carry around those records like he would have a James Brown record in his box, never play it to remind him of like that, that spirit in a way. And I was like, whoa, like, so did you ever feel like you had to play a more rigid style or a more kind of techno style and wanted to play more older songs, some vocal track? Like, did you, you know, was that ever a tension? No, I, well, I don't know. Like in the in the earlier days, I would play a little bit more varied and diverse. Maybe like we all did. There would be house tracks that even throw in a drum and bass track, and then in, intermix with, with with techno and industrial. And then as the career kind of you know went went further, it became more and more yeah um, focused or straight. Why I, do you think that happens? Well, part of me just says that music has changed and you're just not finding the assortment that you felt inspired by in the earlier days. Like when I, like as, as an instance, like I don't, like if I'm listening to new music, if I'm going through promos or I go to Beatport here, you know, of course I'm listening to techno and, and minimal, but I'm also going through other different genres, definitely like house and, and uh, deep house and hard house and and, and I, I would love to find records that are like somehow house, but techie, but 
stripped down with no vocals or just little pieces that fit into what I want to hear, but I just don't find that much variation in, in, mm. and, and still, and still reaching me or touching me. I don't, I, I don't know. Having had now whatever close to two years with no touring or a year and a half with no touring, knowing what you know now, and I know because I know you've gotten very creative in this period and you've locked yourself up and you've set up, you know, new systems and new chains and knowing what you know now, would you cut down on how much you traveled and toured over the last, let's say, 10 years? I don't, I don't know if I, it's very hard to go back and change things, right? And like I said about music making in the beginning of our conversation of doing it when you feel and like allowing it just to, you know, you know, kind of just happen when it needs to happen or when it wants to happen. Uh, so now I do feel like I want to be in the studio more. I love being in there. And, and I even think like, okay, after my first gig last week, I'm like, okay, like, is that it? Like, you know, <laughs> that's a, exactly, that's like, so funny, you know, so it's like, okay, well, how can I do something more here? You know, can I bring some more to the studio there? Like is, you know, DJing was, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to piss people off here, but this is the, 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 the sign of doing it for 30 years. DJing was so exciting when you were putting one record on top of each other and this and that, and you were one of, you know, 100 or one of 1000 people doing that with those very special records. And now it's, it's very much more homogenized and it's, uh, it's just, it's kind of normal, right? Like mm. I, if, if Rich at 20 didn't want to be normal and I kind of feel what I'm doing now is pretty normal. You know, okay, yeah. I'm traveling the world and it, okay, it's, it's, a, it's very extravagant, but um, um, everybody knows what it, who or a DJ these days and so, when I think about DJing and when I see what's going on, you know, I want to I want to know what what we what, what more can we do? And and I'm, you know, so back to the last ten years, I was loving DJing, I was loving traveling, I was sucking it all in, and I, I don't think I would change any of that. Even those days when I didn't want to do a gig because I was so tired or there was something I was missing in in family life, like that's what it was. But now it definitely, um, you know, makes me think about which steps I want to make after one another going forward. And, uh, and, and typical Haunt style, like right before the, the first gig last week, I nearly ripped all my equipment apart and built a whole new DJ style. Uh, and then I, then I thought, you know what, go out and do what you used to first and, and then see how, how you react to that and then rip it apart. So. so I want to ask you, so it seems like you, I kind of envy this, it seems like for, for albums... And for make CDs and, you know, there's phases where it's like technique based. So it's like, you know, you'll, you'll either come up either based on new equipment or a new chain between the equipment or just a new, where you'll, where you'll kind of have a, a, a technique based approach to a project and that guides you. I, th I think that would be kind of from the beginning. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. So like, you know, it, it's coming, it's coming from my, my intellect side rather than my emotional side, except for when that sneaks up on me from behind. Yeah. Which it does, you know, yeah. that is the, I think, but that's a bit the paradox of you with, you know, to speak totally candidly, which is there is, there's that nerd side, that kind of intellectual side, but actually, you know, like this morning, you know, if I, I, I listened to music yesterday and 
actually for the end listener, it comes across as quite extremely warm mm. and quite, you know, I don't know. And I think, I think the trick, I think the cheat code for you, and you're not alone, is, is like the psychedelic side. Mm. I, I think because of that's where you, there, there's a warmth in understanding the acid side of things. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like that's where, where you actually, where someone's kind of taken care of, where it isn't overly cerebral is yeah. that you, you basically understand what has to happen when you're fucked up, you know? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I think, without, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, I think it's also like, sense, it's but, like, yeah, I think it's building a system or a protocol in the machines or a wiring thing and you know, nerding out. So you as the nerd, who probably in, in, at the heart of it doesn't feel still comfortable getting up in front of people and, and, and performing, feels, you know, at home in that system and then is able to kind of lose him, themselves in that system in front of people. Mm. You know, and that's yeah. where, the, where the person comes through, that's where the emotion comes through. Um, but if you had to just jump into that part first, maybe that's why, you know, there's no vocals. There's no, it's, it's, it's all technical. And the technical kind of is the... The, the 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 comfort zone that 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 surrounds me, you know. Okay, so talk about we're talking now about a dream party, right? Like a dream party in okay. your imagination. Uh, your you get to craft your ultimate party. You've probably been to a few of them, but you get to craft one right now. Where would your ultimate perfect party be? Location. Well, I guess I should have read those questions. <laughs> you didn't even read the questions. Not really, no. <laughs> I mean, not answering them, I get, but you didn't even read them. <laughs> you know, emails and long, long emails are scary. You have a baby, you have a baby, you have a baby. I, I very rarely read anything that I'm supposed to read before an interview, you know. I know. Um, you know, a good thing about a new baby is like you get an excuse for anything. <laughs> <laughs> Literally anything. I've, like I've, nobody I've, can. I've already. I've used the card twice already. <laughs> the baby card. You got two years of baby card at least. Mm. I'm trying to think of some some crazy place, you know, which I've never been to, or you know, I find Easter Island one of the most magical places on 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 the planet. Maybe the most magical place that I've ever been to. But would I want to do a party there? I don't think so. Uh, so, so <laughs> just like trash Easter Island, you know. Um, and and when you like when you first say Ibiza, I kind of like you know get you know my skin crawls. I'm like, what? I, like I don't want supper wanna, club. Yeah, I don't. But 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 then I think about Ibiza and like in the '90s, Ibiza sucked, and for me, and 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 I don't feel as engaged with the island now as as I did, um, you know. And and so what I'm trying to say, but like that, there, there was a sweet spot. For that island, um, and from my personal experiences, 2001, 2002, 2003, where it was a place that we could, uh, as artists, escape to and kind of play and perform and enjoy one another. And that was a really, really magic, magic feeling. You know, it was kind of like, it was like school, like Sven would go on and, you know, it would be me and Adam and um, Marco sitting there listening and, and, and dancing. And then I would go on and they would, you know, sit there. I remember Adam and, and Marco sitting and listening for me playing like 18 hours once, something like that crazy. And then we'd do the same for Ricardo. And wow, it was just so beautiful, those experiences. Mm. And so 
so I don't know if that's the place, but that the feeling of that place is where I would want to be. Yeah, that's that sounds nice. I always envied. Uh, well, I mean, we've all had it in moments. There's phases in the career, but that feeling when you're when you have a crew and you're kind of little clubhouse feeling and you're sharing, <clears throat> yeah. like you know, you're trying to kind of one up each other in a nice way. Oh my God, have you heard this? Yeah. And you know, a particular mix and everyone's like, Oh shit. You know, like that, yeah. that's actually, that's the thing I actually miss the most. And, and I think, well, miss it. And I think the times where DJing and the career is really magic is, is those times, you know, that's really like, yeah, it was like, like subliminal communication between everybody. It was just like, you didn't, mm -hmm. you could look at each other, but you just, you, it was what record you were playing and what, how you played it, when you played it, what was coming before, the tempo, the little EQ, like everybody was so dialed in. It was absolutely beautiful. And it also makes you, and it makes you better. Yeah. I mean, the point is it makes you better because you're, you're with your peers and you, it's the opposite of not caring. It's yeah. the opposite of, it's the opposite of being jaded or blasé because you, you, you really do care because you don't want to let them down and, and you don't want to, is there... Is it a hard question? Do you have a favorite DJ? Let's say your last party ever, you have your last party ever, and let's say you finish, and then you pass, you you, ha you hand over the headphones to somebody. I'm not available, by the way. I'm, <laughs> I'm booked. <laughs> Cancel the party. <laughs> so who is it? Who is it? You got? I mean, can can you? Is there? Because I know you in particular have had these relationships. You know, you've had these periods where you played a lot with Sven or you played a lot with Ricardo or mm. who is it somebody that you you know you just really really always loved or felt taken care of when they play you know I wouldn't I wouldn't book any of my old friends or peers for it because okay. it would have to be somebody new refreshing and surprising yeah it could be there's probably a dozen different people it could be but it's who have I, I've been watching or have I been kind of, who's on, my, on, on the tip of my tongue at this moment in time, you know? Mm. If I had to pick one person from my past to be the last DJ, um, it would be John Aquaviva. And if I had to look forward, then I'm not going to actually pick a, a name. And I, I would probably prefer to pick somebody at that moment who's really like, you know just coming up who's still learning their game and i don't know like who's got that energy and fire fire and may not be the mm. perfect person but it's going to be real that's yeah you know, so those Somebody are the two, young. two two extremes that 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 i would want okay just for a second acid okay 303 so yeah. you i mean you love it you know it i love it i know it this is something I like to think. There's not many people I would ask. This is not a question I've asked anybody else. Just specifically for Acid Records, for 303 programming, who's somebody you love? Well, first, uh, first uh, name that comes to mind is Armando. Mm. You know, because his records, the drums, the, you know, the, the, the Acid, they, they just were, just, they just cut through, like... Mm. They're absolutely like they're mind bending. You know what? Is, what is a good acid record supposed to do? It's supposed to twist your mind inside out, like you're on acid, even if you're not on acid. And Amondo yeah. was just the king, king of that.
who plays your after party? This is just for you. Like, let's not go too serious. It's just you. You get to have fun. Who plays your after party? <laughs> uh, and you're not available for this one. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Sorry. I'm sorry, Rich. <laughs> I'm booked out the whole week. Man. Or you want to, if you want to stall, you want to name an after party record? Like a, like just for you, a really, like a perfect after party record? Look, if we're getting, if, if we're, if it's the last party on earth and we're getting to the after party, it's continuing further than the last party on earth. So DJ slip every time it takes a while. Um, it's um, a very, very classic minimal track from 1997. And it's, uh, it's typically reduced and just plays with frequencies that push probably a bit too far than they should and just kind of make your neck slightly get twisted out of place. Like there's, you, you either go, okay, this is the last night on, on, on the last after party. We've got the last couple of records here and everything is extroverted, but this is quite introverted, this record. <laughs> well, that says a lot in and of itself about you and about the selection and about your idea of what the... But this is an interesting point. It's, it's kind of a dividing line. I mean, there are people, oftentimes I think it's kind of a UK thing. I mean, there's people whose idea of the end is clearly a, a real celebratory kind of carnival type, you know, like a Gloria Gaynor, I will survive, you know, whatever, just yep. this crazy, just, just with a big narrative and we're going to go, you know, and, and then on the other extreme is something like what you said. I mean, I, I lean much more towards that. It's an aesthetic where, where it's the after party. No, it's, it's a, it, it gets tweaky and extreme and stretches out these, these other types of feelings, you know, and it's a, and it's amazing that both sides of that exist, you know, because because they're so different. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, like I would actually with that in mind, what I would do, I would play the DJ Slip record and I would and then I would mix from that into Carl Craig, A Wonderful Life. Because okay. this is also super stripped down and it will be completely the counterbalance of that DJ Slip record. this is this is going to be hard if this is actually a question or a statement but when i listened to a lot of your stuff yesterday i heard in the space there's a lot of space in the music let's say yeah sheet one or music or closer or you know there's, there's a lot of there's room you know for the listener and but a word came to me optimism yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. an optimism about the future an embracing and an accepting of it and it's something that I guess without going into us being older gentlemen, is that something you still feel? Is it still there in music? Is it is it just a question of 
who's a young producer at the time or do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I think I, I, I think it's great that you, you said, say that because, you know, I was trying to articulate or think about techno in the last like couple of weeks and there's these kind of two approaches, right? There's this utopia and, and dystopia, you know, and, and I, you know, for me, it was always a utopian dream of the future. There was always a positivity. There was always kind of like technology is going to create a brighter day. And, you know, that was, you know, always my hope, my dream in the studio. And anything about futurism was always that with the light at the end of the, at the, end of the tunnel. Like sometimes when I listen to the work that I've, I've done, I don't know if I hear it in there, but at the same time, I don't think it's, dark like it is dark my stuff but like it i I do you know i hope that that optimism is is there because i feel like i am an optimistic person so i'm very happy that you that you actually pick up on that yeah like is it am i as optimistic about the future as i was as i was when i was a kid probably not and is that because of my age i don't know i think it's just because of the actual awareness of where we are at in our lives and civilization. I have one other question, which is like, you've done a lot of other things. You know, there's, there's an entrepreneurial streak started with labels, you know, it's gone into, uh, clubs and, and business ventures and Saki and, you know, these things, I guess the question is, it's not so much a particular thing, but let's take Saki and uh, Saki sommelier. I don't know the exact word. <laughs> let's take the Saki thing as an example. When you embark on a new, so you get curious about something and you kind of get studious about it, you know, you get really deep into it. In your head, are these things always kind of a side project to music? Like, do you think you're always going to return to music? Or do you sometimes think, especially now, that one of these things could become the main focus one day? Yeah, I, I do think that, I, I, you know, like, especially with, well, Saki is a good example, or like going in with Play Differently and developing a mixer. It's like, okay, am I going to get so sucked into this that I'll have to, or I'll want to put all my time into only designing equipment and, and leave the stage behind? That, that could always happen. And, and, and I think... Could you envision a world where what you get creatively out of making music, you could get from one of these other projects? Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think the the projects that I get involved in, I get involved in, completely and wholly. And like you know, I, I absorb it. I become the project, and and and, um, and 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 I just I act like it. I do within what I do in music. You know, it, it's completely becomes the only thing that I'm I'm, I'm working on and and, and thinking and, and sleeping over. So. Um, that's 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 how I do things, and and I think if if one of those projects grabs more of me and and it just takes me somewhere where I I wasn't imagining, you know, you you would just go with it. It's good, it's good. You're pretty disciplined, it seems like. Or I don't know, like like I you know this is. It always this, seems to, from the outside. It always everyone always thinks you're more disciplined from the outside than you think. One hundred, like you know, I they definitely I think we're all in discipline to a certain point to have got to where we are in our in our lives and, and creative careers because there's a lot of things to navigate and uh to make you know 
to stay creative, to stay sane, to, you know, make the schedule work that you've committed to eight months ago on DJ like this, the travel, like you have to be disciplined, the partying, the drugs, the alcohol, everything that is there or could be there. Like it's, it's a, a serious commitment to, to make your way through it. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Last Party on Earth. If you want more of Richie Houghton, there's an extended episode. You have to sign up to my Club Sexor membership service on Patreon. You go to www.patreon.com slash Tiga. And yeah, you can sign up and get a longer episode as well as longer episodes of all my other guests. Enjoy. Enjoy.